0: Hopefully, that's not too offensive. (laughs) All right, well, good evening, everybody. Well, as we uh, as we continue on thinking our way through Hebrews tonight, um, I hope as you've been uh, reading it, as you've been able to read it, that you've discovered that it's not, in fact, a, a portion of the Scripture that's intended to uh, cause anxiety. It's intended to be an, an exhortation to the Lord's people that they would. Uh, uh, be encouraged and excited about what they're doing in this world. <clears throat> as I, as I thought more just about the title of it, Hebrews. You know, um, it reminded me, and since there's enough allusions to um, Abraham in here, it reminded me of those that were called Hebrews in the Old Testament, and he was the first one. Remember. He was called a Hebrew because he lived in Hebron. That's why they called him that. And uh, the first time he's actually referred to that is when he's called uh, by the one person who escaped to tell them the story of the battle that uh, favored the northern kings. Those northern four kings that attacked the five in the valley uh, valley of Sodom, I guess it would be. It says that he went to Abram the Hebrew, and he mobilized his trained men and so on, and went and uh, took the uh, recovered all the goods, all of the goods of Sodom and Lot and all his goods and so on. Anyway, he's not the only one referred to as a Hebrew, but the ones that are referred to as Hebrews are are generally pretty stellar fellows, you know, like uh, uh, Joseph. Uh, Moses were referred to as Hebrews. Then you recall uh, Jonah, when he's asked who he is and what's his occupation and all that, and he says, well, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. And, and whenever we read that, we kind of smile, but we realize that what he's saying is he's a Hebrew. He really is. He, he's somebody who was a prophet of God. He fears the Lord and he reminds them of the Lord that made heaven and earth and the seas and everything. And they're, they're, of course, astounded at what happens when this Hebrew is thrown into the sea and it becomes calm for them. So it's interesting and what we realize when we think of real Hebrews is that the real Hebrews were those that that the Lord placed in a location to be a... A representative of him, Abraham, being really the first uh, great one, and his example follows his way through. <clears throat> but uh, just a, a quick recap of Hebrews: We come in and in the first chapter, we discover that God spoken in these last days by His Son, who is appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, and so on. And it says, "Who by Himself." purged our sins, and was set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. <coughs> so it, it was the Son that was set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And chapter 1 ends with these words quoted from the Psalm, uh, Psalm 110, which is quoted several times in the New Testament. 11, I think. <coughs> Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So chapter 1 kind of ends up there where the Lord Jesus is seated in the heavenlies and and it's till he's he's waiting. And if you think there's nothing to do while he's waiting, there is. And the book of Hebrews is going to go on and and urge us onwards in that. And he reminds us in chapter two that he, he has a great purpose. Uh, we have a great purpose. Salvation, he calls it. One that we ought not to neglect, but to nurture and culture. And he points us to the fact that this Son of God uh, came into the world for the express purpose of bringing many sons to glory. <clears throat> and it goes on and explains how he tasted death for every man. And uh, uh, he destroyed the works of the devil and so on, and um, and then in chapter three we find that here he goes back and he points out that as looks back to some examples and interesting to notice that some of the Old Testament examples that are used they're not necessarily in a chronological order they they kind of go back and forth in, in time but they illustrate his point and he starts with Moses as really the leader that was appointed to lead the people of God. He delivered them with a strong hand and outstretched arm from Egypt. And you remember the Passover when uh, there was a a great destruction in Egypt. But those that were under the blood, he passed over and they were delivered. They were delivered through the Red Sea, came out the other side, and they had this uh, man Moses that God had appointed. But but better than Moses, who was faithful in his house, better than Moses was going to be the Son, right? Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our confessions, as chapter three, who was better than that. He was the one who actually built all or built the house. Christ as the Son over His own house, and so we see that the Son here as an instrumental. Uh, place in leading his people as the Apostle, the one through whom all the orders come, all the instructions come. Uh, The new leader. And the warning there in chapter 3 is not to be discouraged because the way of following the Lord Jesus is a hard way. So his warning is there to enter into rest. Don't give up on the way. And so several times through the next couple of chapters, we see the words, um, hold firm to the end. Keep going. And what happened, you recall, and he, he brings up the point that they decided that since the way was so hard and we weren't really getting into this promised land, all wasn't as grand as Moses had promised that they decided to choose another leader. That was the rebellion, really. And many of them signed up with that. And they said, you know, that is a good idea. Because it says they had these evil hearts. And their evil hearts were easily pushed off the path. And so they decided, well, yeah, maybe we will follow somebody else. And as a result of that, the Lord was displeased and they fell in the wilderness, it says. And their carcasses dropped in the wilderness. But it says that they were to, uh, or that we rather... Because we have a better apostle, our Lord Jesus. We are to continue pressing on, not to miss the rest. And it it explains what the rest is. It compares it to the, it tells you what it's not. It's not uh, getting into the promised land. It's not uh, even uh, surviving to the time of David. Because David was still speaking of this future one. But it was was the kind of rest like God had on the seventh day. Of creation, it goes back and it explains that, and you'll remember that on the seventh day of creation, God wasn't delivered from his enemies he uh, he wasn't uh, secure and safe all of a sudden, but rather he was he had finished a work and was satisfied. And the idea is he's saying here that you, who are to continue to the end, are to continue in the work that I had given you and to enter in to that joy of the word. And as he, he points out, he says, you too have this evil heart of unbelief lurking in you, which is why I've given you the word of God. It's quick, it's powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to discern between soul and spirit, which is what we need. So having allowed that to cultivate, uh, the idea is to go then to our high priest, who can be merciful to these things that lurk in our hearts and uh, give grace to help in time of need so that we are not upended by the hard ways that come into our life. And then he points out here that uh, this high priest is not just any old high priest like Aaron. He was like Aaron in two ways anyway, uh, in that he was, A, compassionate because he uh, understood our frame he was made like a man and then secondly he was called like Aaron and uh and it quotes the verse in chapter 5 verse 5 and uh it says you are my son today i have begotten you so again we find out that not only is the uh, the leader the apostle the son but we find out that the high priest is the son again bringing make, making sons and bringing many sons to glory and we find out that this important principle here is that in the same way the Son was perfected having learned obedience through the things which he suffered, we too are supposed to walk in this world and the hard things don't bother us because we know that it's suffering that teaches us obedience. And I'll tell you, those those that have sons or our sons or... No, sons, you know this, that the the one thing that a son or daughter has to learn to be successful is to learn obedience. And the scripture endorses that. If there's one thing you have to teach your son, it's to obey. If you can't learn to obey, he'll he'll never bow to the knee of the gospel. If he can't learn to obey, he'll never walk in faith. He'll, he'll never go on and grow. So obedience is something that, of course, we waver at. The Lord Jesus, it says here, he's become the author of eternal salvation to all that obey him as a result. That's chapter 5, verse 9. The author of eternal salvation. You wrote the book on it, you could say. Anything you want to know about how to walk in obedience, you can see it from the Lord Jesus and you can follow him to the garden. And there in the garden, you can see that it was not... Uh, the Lord's uh, not his will, but his father's will was to be done. And so he obeyed and it uses that illustration to explain it. And then we notice that there was a pause. He wants to go on and explain the ways that he's that the Lord Jesus is not like Aaron and the Levitical priests, but he's actually more like Melchizedek, but he's got to pause for a second and he points out that they really haven't been going on well. And I wanted to just dwell here for a second because I kind of glossed over an illustration that is uh, that is tucked in here in verses seven and eight of chapter six. Um, so you'll excuse me for taking a, a few moments before I get to the new covenant. But in verses seven and eight, he's He's using this illustration here to make a point and it follows through in the, in the uh, rest of chapter 6. And the point is this. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. <clears throat> so, the, the point is, is being emphasized in, in relation to the impossibility that he has just stated. Notice in verse 4, it's impossible for those who once in, were once enlightened, tasted a heavenly gift, and so on, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. If you will, it's it's kind of like what Moses did in the wilderness as he struck the rock the second time. We understand that the rock was to be struck once. And the the Lord Jesus was crucified once. And the balance of the book is, gonna, uh, is going to uh, aggressively state that in many different ways. But... Uh, here we have the idea that going back to the to the cross to deal with sin each time as though one was lost. And, and the gain on the road to hell is just not how it works. He says it's impossible. This is one of four things that are impossible, by the way, uh, written here in Hebrews. And it goes right along with it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take sins away. And... uh now, what's the last one? It's impossible for Oh well we'll get there. I probably wrote it down. So it's impossible to please God without faith. You knew did that, didn't you? Okay. <clears throat> so so it's impossible uh for this. Therefore he says, Let's remember now what we're supposed to be doing here. And he's gonna bring Abraham into the arguments and and That's going to follow in uh, verses 13 and onwards. And he talks about uh, God making a promise to Abraham. And in verse 14 it says, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply multiply you. (laughs) Considering Abraham here for a moment, since he's part of the passage, is, is that Abraham then... Abram, when he and Lot were first separated, Abram dwelt, you recall, looking over the city of Sodom, where Sodom had moved into. And the whole point in Abraham being brought there, again, was to, to be a representative of God. To be a witness for him in a place that he never inherited except for you know, a field and a, and a cave in, uh, over in Hebron. But, but there he was, and he looked around, and he knew it was his because God had promised, and he kept going, even though he didn't get it himself. And the whole idea of him being there was fulfilled in that he brought blessing to others around. And really, that's the point of all of us. You see, it says the earth, which symbolizes us in this illustration, okay? You have the earth, it's cultivated by someone, um, but the rain. That comes upon it often is drunk in by the earth, and as a result of that, it brings blessing to or well, it it brings grain harvest to others. They get the the benefits of that, but the blessing it says. Notice, notice how verse seven describes it: the earth which drinks in the rain that comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it's cultivated. Receives blessing from God. It's the earth that receives the blessing from God. In the same way that it was Abram that received the blessing from God. As he was there, being a witness, uh, bringing benefit to the others around him. And the opposite would be said of Lot now, wouldn't it? So, thinking of Lot's testimony, his witness, uh, if you would, the fruit that he bore over in Sodom. Well, you know he didn't escape with anything but his two daughters, right? His wife even was left sort of at the edge of town and were exhorted to remember her. But um, as, as he left town, uh, everything that he owned otherwise was burned up. And this is really what the intention, I think, he's emphasizing the point that if you're not really growing and moving on and learning to walk in faith, then you'll be walking by sight. As a result, the fruit that you bear is going to be the wood, hay, and stubble that it's described as get burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. So I think this little illustration fits in quite neatly there. You'll notice uh, Lot's life was like that, and it, his fruit was rejected uh, near to being cursed. It says, "Whose ends to be burned?" It doesn't mean. Doesn't mean the Christian's end is dear to being burned, or the end's to be burned, but uh, the fruit born there is to be burned. And that's what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. Um, and the things that stay, the uh, gold, silver, precious stones, are that which stays. It's that which uh, was, was wrought for the Lord in walking by faith again without faith it's not possible to please him. So so he goes on and he says look the things that accompany salvation naturally are going to be the things that bring blessing to others and you receive blessing from God, okay? So he goes on and he explains just how that happened to Abraham. Lot's well, not mentioned here, but he says that so that they can get going. They're going to have to start thinking of these ancient metaphors in a new way. And he he then brings into uh, the play Melchizedek that we touched on uh, last time when we talked and explained that here's Melchizedek, somebody who wasn't offering uh, sacrifices, but rather he was one who was an intercessor. He interceded uh, our direction. So he intercepted Abraham at his time. We didn't even know he had a need, right? He didn't know he was going to be facing the king of Sodom next. But, but he was there. So he was instrumental in his life. And we want to realize that our Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus, who it says beginning in our portion today in verse 8, chapter 8 here, is that we have such a high priest like this, who who works in our lives as things happen, as our day is Redirected strangely, we see that he is working in our lives not just to make us more like Christ, but that's part of it. But he's—it's there to aid others around us in the same way Abram was able to do so in his day. Okay, so that brings us back up to where we where we left off, I think. In uh, and we'll look here at uh, chapter eight, and we'll start to read a few verses. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, uh, which the Lord erected and not men. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices; therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there's priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was just divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain." But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So what we want to talk about here is the fact that, that we're now going to look at the tabernacle in its way it was really intended that is it's it's a big instructive lesson isn't it and we notice that just take a look in there in verse 5 again you notice it says it's that it's a copy and shadow of heavenly things so when we look at the tabernacle in the wilderness we see that where we learn that God was instructing us from that. That's a copy of the heavenly things in some way, right? And then you'll see the, the idea carries on. That's why he was emphatic with Moses to make sure that you you uh, constructed according to the pattern that you were shown. So he was shown that for a very specific reason, so that when we saw this, we would learn something about that. Okay. I know you know these things, but I just want to show you the different places where it says it. But in chapter uh, uh, 9 and verse 9, you will see that it talks about, uh, again, now speaking of the, the holy place and the most holy place, it says it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect. In regard to the conscience and so on. The idea, it was symbolic. It stood for something. Chapter 9 and verse 23 and 4 we see. Uh, speaking of the way things were done in there. It says, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these." So, As we look at the tabernacle, it's like looking at any shadow, we said. The idea is it's a little fuzzy around the edges. You can learn something. It's not exactly the thing, but it's like the thing. So we're supposed to learn from these things so that we can really grow and and go on. Chapter 10 and verse 1 says, similarly, you'll notice about the law. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things and notice by the way it says can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect so there was limitations they they couldn't really do what they uh, stood for they were symbolic but as as the lesson that came from it was that they just didn't finish the job That's why they were offering sacrifices over and over and over and over again. Alright, so let's um, let's think here for a moment about the the new covenant. So as we go to verse 7 there, chapter 8, verse 7. And we'll read down to uh, 13, to the end of the chapter. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, that is, the people, he says, Behold, the days are coming. So this is Jeremiah he's quoting from now. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant And I disregarded them, says the Lord. So, the covenant that they made. Now, why don't we just quick and turn back for a second to see uh, what it looks like um, in Exodus 24 we'll go. So So let's just read a few verses here. Um, Verse 3. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And basically he's read through since uh, the Ten Commandments and forward. Lots of things, instructions and so on. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. Alright, so they agreed in principle to what was outlined. And then in verse 4 it says, So Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings and of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood. He sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of all the people. So he's, he's read now what he's, he's transcribed. Eh? And, and they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. All right, and Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. All right, no problem, right? The problem with this kind of a covenant, of course, was not God. It wasn't the rules or it wasn't the instructions. It wasn't the agreement. The problem was the people. You see, for a covenant like this, you've got two parties and... They both benefit from this covenant and they enter into this agreement. They write it down, they agree, and then they, you know, sprinkle some blood on this in in this case and it becomes legally binding until, of course, somebody fails to keep up their end. Well, you just read what they had promised to do in order to get the benefit. And by the way, I suppose it's good to know what the benefit would have been. Um, Actually, um, well, we'll... Turn back there. The benefit was really uh, a reiteration, or what Peter reiterated. The idea was they were going to be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation—that kind of a thing. I think it's found in Exodus 19. Let me just turn there quick, just to see. That was the benefit, though. You can see the problem right away: is they weren't able to keep up their side of it. Um, Yes, verse, uh, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special, pe- a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to, you, to the children of Israel. So Moses came and he called for the elders and so on. And they thought that was great. Yeah, we want to be God's own special people. He owns everything. We want to be part of that. So they—they they were going to benefit from this. You know what? The Lord was going to benefit too. Right? They would be His people, and He would be their God. It's strange sometimes to think about it, but He thinks that's a benefit for Him. Never wonder about that. Anyway, the uh, the, uh, the Hebrews describes. Uh, that further on what we'll, that we will get to. But anyway, back to um, Hebrews 8. So that's what they had. So basically they couldn't keep the law. They couldn't keep the covenant, And so the covenant failed. So chapter 8 and verse 10 now. It says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my, so this is the covenant now. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, by the way, the writer goes on, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So this new covenant, which is uh, a little different now, isn't it? You notice that it doesn't involve the necessary transmission from uh, generation to generation to generation anymore. Did you see that? He says, I will teach them. I, I'm going to do it myself. And not only that, um, I'm going to write my laws in their minds and on their hearts. And I'll be their God. They'll be my people. And, and in verse 12, where it says, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more, all of a sudden poses a bit of a problem with this covenant. In that... I say it a problem only to get us thinking a little bit because God doesn't have problems. (laughs) But this one's not really two-sided anymore, although both benefit in the same way. I mean, both benefit similarly to the way both benefited on the other. But in this one, it can't fail because God can't fail and we don't have a part in its performance. Isn't that something? The only part that we have is that the only part that we have in this covenant is that we have sins and iniquities that he'll remember no more. But the the difficulty one might immediately say is, well, wait a second, what then will be the basis of their sins and iniquities being remembered no more? And uh, chapter nine goes in now to explain how that that is handled, and. And as it goes, because that's the obvious question. So as we go through chapter nine and ten, I just want you to notice that it pops out on the other side, demonstrating that this covenant is perfectly legitimate, and it's it's the thing that solves all of your problems. Down to chapter ten and verse uh, fifteen, but the Holy Spirit also witnessed to us, for after he had said before. This is the covenant I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, says verse 17, their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. See, see how I mentioned, I think, on, at the onset, how it kind of reads like a preacher would preach. He <laughs> kind of pauses there, and he says, did you notice how he added that most important part? Their sins and iniquities, I'll remember no more. Well, how does he? How does he handle that? Uh, let's just go over to we're back rather to chapter nine and verse uh, sixteen, and we see that this kind of a uh, covenant, it kind of is more like a last will and testament, um, when someone dies and they write a will ahead of time that has all of their wishes the only thing required for it to go into effect is for them to die and for those that he desired his wishes to be bestowed upon to show up at the at the scene that's really it and that's what we have here in verse 16 it says for where there's a testament there must also of necessity be the death of the of the testator for a testament's in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives, and so it goes on to explain the fact that it's very similar to how the other book had been sprinkled by blood. So this new covenant had been sprinkled by blood, and we, we read that in the upper room ministry where the Lord Jesus says, "This is this cup is the blood of the new covenant," and that's the idea that His blood was going to be shed. Putting in effect the wishes of God, their sins and iniquities I will never no more. So, um, notice now here too, as we think of how that comes into place, so I want you to want you to notice uh, an interesting part. The Day of Atonement is brought in here, so he's now going to emphasize just how big this offering was. So not only was it the the ceiling or the. Um, ratifying part of the new covenant it also affected what the day of atonement only foreshadowed and that's in verses 23 to 28 and um, uh, 26 to 28 and it says um, i should say 25 to 28 okay so not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another Then he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. What you have tucked away in these couple of verses is really the day of atonement pictured by the Christ. Uh, as the high priest entering in, uh, but with the blood of another. And so, of course, the high priest couldn't picture that very well and, and on the Day of Atonement, so he had to bring the blood of a goat in with him. And then he couldn't uh, himself also bear the sin away, except he, did, except he had a third goat. And so as you just quickly turn over, by the way, to Leviticus um, uh, 16, I think it is. 16? Uh, 24. Uh, yes, it's, um, yes, it's 16. So, we're not going to read the whole portion of 16, but what I wanted you to notice is this, uh, I find this fairly special, is that uh, verse 28, um, the end of verse 28, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. So this is this is picturing that day, okay? Uh, so back in chapter 16 of Leviticus, what you find out is uh, there's a number of things that have to occur. Uh, first of all, the first thing that has to happen is in verse uh, 12, he takes a censer of, oh. Uh, he takes a censer full of burning coals, the fire from the altar, uh, and he goes in with the incense. He, and there's a whole cloudy cover that goes over the mercy seat. Uh, and then he comes back, and in verse 14, he takes some of the blood of the bull and he sprinkles it. And he does it seven times. And then he comes back and he, and he puts some of the blood of the first... Now, that one in verse 14, that was the blood of a bull. That was a sin offering for himself. In verse 15. So he takes that first goat in verse 15 and it's the sin offering for the for the people. It says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle on this uh, mercy seat before the mercy seat. So the blood goes in. And um, and it says, So he shall make atonement for the holy place. And you get down... Uh, Farther, you'll find in verse 21, 20, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting the altar, he shall bring the live goat, and lays both his hands on the head of the live goat, confessing over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins. Of course, that's only one year's worth, at all. But nonetheless, uh, putting it on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land. And then it says, uh, Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting and take off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and he'll leave them there. Linen garments aren't going to be necessary as he comes out of all of his service here, you see. He says, he'll wash his body with water in a holy place. He'll put on his garments. He'll come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering and so on. So, that verse 24 that we just read, you notice that is uh, that is part of the ritual of the day of atonement that is going to be strangely different in the way Christ is described. Did you see that? It's uh, So, when... When the priest goes in, he's in his um, his linen garments, this this clean white, you know, sin uh, sin-free. I guess the idea is they're spotless garments, and he's going in to do this work. And when he comes out again after the the offerings of the goats are are done, he comes out having changed his clothes and he's got his regular clothes, the high priestly garments of glory and beauty back on. And so the people are all waiting outside. They're not doing anything. They're just waiting They're watching. And in he goes and he does the work. Nobody else is in there that that time. Often the other priests were in doing their thing. Not that day. He's in there by himself, putting away sins. The next time they see him, out he comes and he's, he's clothed in these beautiful robes again his high priestly robes and the first thing he has to do when he comes out says verse 24 there is he in leviticus is he's got to now offer sin, uh, an offering a burnt offering for himself you see so when the lord jesus shows again in his his robes of glory and beauty as we look for him now he will come back without sin you won't have to offer any more sacrifices again. And that's how come it concludes verse chapter 10 and verse 18. There is no longer an offering for sin necessary. <clears throat> well, there's, there's a lot more that can be said about the uh, offerings and so on. An important thing to notice here is that in the end, God's will was done. This was his plan all along. And if you go to chapter 10 and verse 5, he says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. So, even back then, we realized that all of those offerings were a picture of something to come. God took no pleasure in the death of bulls and goats. But in the sun, that was really a sweet-smelling aroma. And the sun didn't uh, enter into any of these things on earth, but it says rather, that was back in chapter 8, by the way, says that he entered into heaven itself. That's the holy place. Now, um, when he entered into the holy pro- place, you'll notice I'm going on and on and the clock's still turning and nobody seems to want to say anything and I appreciate that. But the <laughs> but it, it's kind of a great thing that he entered into the holy place. And so as we do our, our earthly work as now kings and priests to God, in the new, under the new covenant, we do that with with an open veil. You realize that. Just, just look at um, chapter 10 here, and verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So, he's saying here. That we have direct access into the holy place, the holy of holies, as it, as it were, the symbolic holy of holies. But in heaven, we enter right in there. There's not a veil separating us anymore at all. So as we, the exhortation now, chapters, or verse 19 to 25 here is really going to sum up everything that's been said. And it refers back to a number of the things that I, I referred to at the start of our Message tonight, but the idea is we have boldness to enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated, He, he sanctified for us through the veil. That is to say, it says, another metaphor, his flesh. The, the only thing separating us from God when Christ was on earth. Now we weren't we weren't there, but you get the idea. It was was his his flesh. He, he was veiled in it. And now he's he himself has this glorious body. And he's entered in there, and we have access to it i I wonder if I appreciate just what that means. I'm sure that I don't in all of its detail, but here we have the means of being um real sons, those who will uh take on the family business, of reaching out to this world around us. We have access moment by moment to the, in the presence of God. I know I've said that a few times now, but but have you gotten over that yet? A new and living way that he made for us. Um, and then it exhorts us now, because we have a high priest over the house of God. That's a reference now back to the apostle Moses. Remember, he was uh, faithful in the house, but the son was over the house. So this is again pointing back to that son who's over the house of God, whose house you are as you continue to the end. So it says, Then let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, you have every reason to believe that you're welcome there on the merits of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that finished. There is no more offering. There is no more... Everything that was said needed to be done was done. He finished it and God's perfectly satisfied. Well, we'll go on from there and... um, and try and see then how he wants us to step up and put into practice the realities that have been given to us and have been explained to us in these, um, earthly metaphors. All right. So he's just bowing a word of prayer. The father in heaven, we want to just pause and admit to you that we have a hard time appreciating fully What you are saying to us here, and yet we realize that you have accomplished great things in bringing um, sinners, guilty, undone, without hope, strangers from the covenants and promises. We weren't even part of Israel and Judah who were going to be recipients of the new covenant. And your in your mind from eternity past, your design had it in this way to bring many sons to glory. So, Father, we would just pray that you would uh, take the the few of us that are here tonight and stir our hearts and our souls, continue to write your laws on them, and to urge us on. We realize that the time is very short, that there are people lost to God around us, that you would de- desire that we uh, demonstrate just by what has occurred to us in our, the way we live holy lives. Uh, we look unto Jesus, who is author and finisher of our faith. We, uh, we continue and uh, uh, hold fast to our profession until the end. Father, we want to, in all the things that we, we fail at, we want to come quickly to you to be in agreement again, and to go on realizing that you have paid for that too. And so, Lord, we just commit each one here into your care. We thank you for the um, the help that is uh, ever in this meeting, the, the unity that we enjoy here, and the faithfulness of the saints. We pray that you would encourage the ones whose hands are down and are downcast. Help us to uh, exhort one another daily, knowing uh, knowing how difficult it is in this world, And so we just give you our thanks in our Savior's worthy and precious name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.